brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Heretics Podcast. I'm Graham Barlow and with me is Damon Smith. And this time we're doing a bit more of the Han Dynasty. So we've done parts one and two. This is part three. I don't know if there'll be a part four. We'll see how we get on, eh? Yeah, indeed. Um, we, we did a really fun subject in the last one. Mongolian wrestling. Oh, that was good, Mongolian wrestling. Uh, so let's let's try and make the second part of the um, Han Dynasty almost as interesting as Mongolian wrestling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so where are we starting off then? Uh, so we, we just, well, I think as I recall where we got to is that um, Wang Mang, the, uh, the usurper, um, and pretty much pretty much the only emperor of the um, Xin dynasty had just been chopped to pieces when uh, the Liu family sacked um, Chang'an, the capital. Mm-hmm. There was, uh, briefly, after that, there was um, one of the members of the Liu family became emperor, but he's not really counted in the later Han dynastic records. A guy called Liu Xuan, uh, otherwise known as Emperor Genshi, who would be the 14th emperor of the Han dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he saw in that sort of power vacuum, he initially got some sort of ascendancy. But um, as we said, um, Confucianism had been starting to kick in in a big way. Uh, the, you know, we'd had a, a Confucian nutcase in charge of the country for a while. Um, and before that, you know, Confucian, the, the Confucianism leads to corruption kind of model was playing itself out. And it, as we said, it had led to a bunch of peasant rebellion, rebellions. Um, and there was a particularly big one, um, quite a famous one around this time, known as the Chimei, uh, which means the red eyebrows. You, you probably got that pattern. Something May eyebrows is quite a common one in China. For instance, Pak May, the martial art, is a white eyebrow. So Chi May, that's red eyebrows. All right. Uh, and apparently, to identify themselves, these guys used to color their eyebrows red. This was part of their um, their identification with their cause, if you like. Mm-hmm. And he, they became quite powerful, and um, Emperor Genshi actually surrendered to them in the end. Um, they didn't kill him initially, but there was an attempt uh, by some members of the Liu family to restore him to power, and he was basically strangled during this attempt. Mm. Uh, so that was the end of him, and he doesn't really get counted as part of the later Han, uh, the Western Han, uh, though he was a Han emperor. So I, you know, I count him as number fourteen in, in my theory that it's all the same dynasty anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then the next guy was uh, very significant. Emperor um, Guangwu, um, who was, I think, as we said last time, he was a descendant of the line of Emperor Jing way back in the quite far back in the early Han. Um, I think he was a sixth generation descendant of Emperor Jing. So, this is the continuity between the early Han and the late Han periods. Um, 
and he uh, turned out to be quite a quite a, a clever guy. This guy, he ruled from twenty five through to fifty seven A.D. And uh, in Chinese culture, he's kind of considered to be like a great strategist. Mm. And he started a trend uh, that was continued much throughout the whole of Chinese history, just about, where he he wasn't very hands-on with his generals. What he used to do was sort of send them advice from afar. You know, this idea that the, the emperor of the Middle Kingdom uh, sort of sits in his capital and fires out orders across the kingdom. Um, and actually, for Liu Xu, that was his that was his name, uh, Emperor Guangwu. This actually worked pretty well, uh, but he made he, he was into a um, little bit shamanistic. He was into making strategic what you call strategic predictions. He would predict what enemy forces and um, various uh, various groups uh, involved in power struggles. He would predict how they would react to different things that his generals were going to do ahead of time. And he actually turned out to be quite successful. Mm. And this was this fact that he turned out to be quite good at this uh, strategic prediction, you know, management through strategic prediction. It's a little bit shamanistic, isn't it? It is a bit, yeah. It's like he's the shaman giving advice to the people who are working for him, basically. Yeah. Um, was actually disastrous for many later emperors who thought they were equally as good at this practice as he was. <laughs> uh, and that many subsequent emperors tried to emulate him in doing this with, uh, should we say, less than successful results, as we'll find as we go through Chinese history. Uh, he was quite a nice guy, um, almost uniquely in the Han Dynasty and a lot of other dynasties. He didn't really kill or get rid of anybody who was a bit of a threat to him. You know, this happens a lot, doesn't it, with with these sort of early leaders and not so not so early leaders. Um, they they tend to get rid of people who pose a threat to them. He didn't do that. In fact, he he was very so sort of meritocratic minded kind of person, um, and he. Um, he ruled to start off with. He ruled just ruled parts of China, um, but as as time went by, because of this this great sort of strategic leadership that he had, he managed to um, put together uh, kind of he built China like it was a, a portfolio, if you like, a portfolio of different areas. Hmm. He suppressed local warlords. Uh, he managed to destroy the Chime peasant army that had uh, that had um, uh, captured uh, Emperor Genshi, and um, he also um, moved the capital uh, two hundred miles to the east. For you know, it had been Chang'an for the whole of the early Han period. He moved it two hundred miles to the east to um, to Chang'an. Uh, to, sorry, to Luoyang. Mm. And uh, he instituted a number of land reforms. Now, one of the land reforms are one of the major features of the later Han Dynasty. If you think of, um, if you think of how um, what happened with the the two parts of the Han, the early and the late. If you think of the, the early Han as sort of figuring out the various ways in which China could be run, a huge nation, which is you know built by Qin Shi Huangdi. But then Qin Shi Huangdi's 
uh, dynasty didn't last very long and the Han were left there to figure out how you run an enormous state like this. I mean, you're the mm. biggest state the world's ever seen, you know, by, at this point in time. By far, not even close, you know. Um, just so much bigger than anything else that had preceded it. How do you actually run that? And they were left to figure it out. And the general big ideas as to how that was done were, were came from people like Liu Bang and um, uh, Wu Di in the early part of the Han. But later in the Han, you got this kind of ironing out of the kinks. I guess it's like, um, in in a legal sense, it's like, you know, government produced acts and statutes, uh, produces the laws, but then the judiciary iron out the kinks in those laws by producing case law mm. that sort of fine tunes them, if mm. you like. And that's what was going on here. And in the later hand, one of the biggest innovations was a very modern system of land ownership, you know, um, a bit like um, I had a little bit of work for the land registry in the UK, and you know the the later Han uh, land registry system wasn't altogether different from the one that's still used in Britain today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, deeds to land, and you know who is the owner of the land is very clearly established. Um, and what you found inevitably is certain families, um, because the influ influence of Confucianism certain families with a scholarly leaning also tended to be similar to the families that picked up a lot of land mm -hmm. uh, and and land ownership and scholarship well scholarship had already become important in the early hand uh, confucian scholarship obviously but in the later hand you also got this rising class of landowners who became incredibly powerful uh throughout the whole of chinese history and um you got a, a, a relatively marked reduction in the prestige of the military and the prestige of warrior type of um, activity that with a, a couple of brief interludes when, when things in military became, um, became attractive in the popular consciousness, like in the, the, the following period, the, the Three Kingdoms period, actually that sticks throughout the whole of Chinese history as well. Whereas, you know, the, the Chinese leaders, the Chinese never really had any equivalent of what happened in Japan with the military becoming, you know, the, the bouquet, the, the ruling warrior elite. Mm. Uh, that didn't really happen at all in China. In fact, just the opposite. The, in, for such a big, powerful country, militaries, the importance of the military was relatively sort of low ranking kind of thing. And so this, this kind of idea around land reforms and, and you know, a very, very... Uh, clear legal and commercial framework around which land changed hands and was owned and and you know ownership persisted in families um was was the innovation uh, starting with uh Xu. um and like i say by 36 he had the whole of china back under control uh had the warlord suppressed and all that kind of stuff so so quite an important emperor in the grand scheme of things um his uh, successor, uh, Emperor Ming, uh, nothing to do with the Ming dynasty, hmm. um, uh, Liu Yang, um, was also an important emperor. He ruled from 58 through to 75 AD. Uh, so, you know, reasonably length of reign. But this was the period in which Buddhism starts to arrive in ah, China. Okay. And... Um, it, we've actually already talked about the mechanism. We have, didn't specifically mention it, but we've actually talked about the mechanism by which that happened. Um, 
if if we go back the way and, and change countries briefly um, to India or what we now call India, um, the it, between uh, the, well up until one eight five BC, so this is early in the early Han, there was an emperor of the what's known as the Maurya dynasty in in India, uh, northern India, um, who uh, was incredibly influential. Uh, he was called Ashoka or Ashoka the Great. And he uh, inherited, he was the third emperor of that dynasty, which pretty much united India. There was a small part of southern India. Well, I mean, it's a big part of southern India, but there was a small part of southern modern India that wasn't in his empire. But pretty much the rest of what we call India today and a lot of Pakistan uh, would be counted as part of the empire of Ashoka the Great. Mm. And in 263, the very significant, so he's an incredibly powerful man. Mm. His predecessors established this very powerful, solid dynasty. In 263, he converted to Buddhism, and he promoted Buddhism. He didn't just convert to it, he promoted it, started a kind of campaign of evangelization. Mm. He controlled two important areas. One was the part of uh, northern India, the north, north, northeastern India, where the historical Buddha had actually taught. Um, but he also controlled the territories in the northwest, which were into the border regions of Inner Asia, of Central Asia. Um, you know, all the Istan countries like um, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Turkmenistan, all, well, that, those sort of countries are now Afghanistan. Hmm. The, the, he controlled the regions that bordered on those, and there was a lot of trade went through there. And that trade borders on, that, that area then subsequently borders on the Tarim Basin area, the Hershey Corridor that we talked about in the, that the Xiongnu at one time had control of, and that the Han gradually themselves um, moved their interests into. And so what happened was Buddhism, through the work of Ashoka and, and his successors, Buddhism permeated that Central Asia area and so it was sat there waiting and, and so when the Han forces there's still expansion going on at this point in time this is sort of a, another golden age in the Han dynasty the early later Han mm. um, as they started to move into that area it was inevitable that they would come in contact with Buddhism and and indeed they did and and Buddhist the very first Buddhist Buddhists Buddhist teachers started arriving in China um, but this was a, still a very, very heavily Confucian China. Mm. Um, and so um, under the, the rule of Liu Yang, the, 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 um, he was quite a reasonable guy, uh, this emperor, uh, Emperor Ming. He demanded a lot of integrity from his officials. Um, and if, if his rivals, a bit like his father, if his rivals are opponents, had integrity he also treated them well initially anyway he, he um treated them well hmm. however he was rather ruthless in the eradication of corruption um and he got more so as time went on and then late in his reign there were things like mass executions um so you know a lot of these guys deteriorate as time goes by but and when the buddhists started arriving he was quite uh um uh, um He's quite a reasonable sort of guy. Um, and he, uh, one of the guys that he 
he promoted or uh, looked after on the basis of this integrity thing was a guy called Ban Chao, who became a general, a famous general in Chinese history. Uh, and Ban Chao uh, was the guy who eventually pushed the Xiong Yu out of that Hershey corridor and mm. moved right into the, the town basin, you know, the, the Takli Makan Desert, where the previous expedition had gone. He managed to actually take control of that and incorporate it into the Han Empire. So effectively, this is the sort of point when the Han Empire reaches its maximum extent. When we were talking about the, when I measured it on Google Earth, yeah, yeah, this was the point in time when I was doing that measurement from. Um, and um, he and his son, the Emperor Zhang, uh, Liu Da, uh, are considered an, another golden age, basically. Um, mm. His son uh, took over in 75. Oh, so what I should have said about the, the, the treatment of the Buddhists, uh, they were, they were uh, treated with respect, they were welcomed, but they were very, at this point, they were very much a novelty. They were sort of mm. given a place at court, and it was, it was like, oh, aren't these funny Buddhist people interesting? It was that kind of, mm. it was that kind of thing. There was nothing very fundamental going on at this point. The, the, the Buddhist influence, such as it was, would have only been among the nobles, or pretty much among the nobles. But this was the point when, you know, when Buddhism moves into countries, that's pretty much how it does it, and just like Christianity did historically. The, the missionaries, the evangelicals, start to target the elite. Um, because, you know, you can convert an awful, like with the Shoka, you can convert an awful lot of people by converting one guy if he's the emperor or the king. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, but you don't, you don't really hear Buddhism being a, a sort of missionary type religion these days, do you? Um, well, I think that, I think we talked about this on the Woven Energy podcast. You know, one of the, one of the issues about talking about Buddhism in the West is that, um, it's the Buddhism, the perception of Western people towards what Buddhism actually is and how it operates is radically different from the perception of Buddhism in the Far East, radically different. Mm. Um, and I think that's because we also, we in the West, uh, have taken on Buddhism very much in the same way that um, that the early later hand the early later hand emperors <laughs> early later uh, yeah. <laughs> the the emperors around you know between sort of emperor number 15 and emperor number 17 of the han dynasty took it on it's kind of a novelty here isn't it it's kind of something quite mm. cute and it's all peaceful and everything isn't it you know mm. and uh we we don't seem to mesh up on our brains facts like you know it was a buddhist group that put sarin gas down the tokyo subway you know <laughs> this this kind of thing doesn't register with it oh but how could that be they're all peaceful and everything you know um and of course groups the uh, original philosophy may have been well being benevolent and kind-hearted you know at the time mm. of the, the historical buddha but, you know, just as with Christianity, an awful lot of bad stuff can be done in the name of the religion, and it certainly has been throughout the ages. Hmm. Um, and uh, Buddhism became uh, gradually in the Far East, just as Christianity did in Europe. It became a major, if not the major, money spinner. Um, it was, you know, at one time, you know, the Catholic Church and its, um, its branches and various sects became the effectively the bankers i mean the nice templar made their whole income from being the bankers of europe mm. uh, and the middle east well this was very very similar with buddhism in the far east um, 
and like I say, they 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 tried to evangelize everybody, but they um they targeted the elites um, for obvious reasons. It makes perfect sense from a marketing point of view. Um, yeah, and yeah, you could say that a lot of things that go on in Buddhism, I mean, one of the really interesting things is, I'm not going to name any names or anything, but let's, should we say, I've, I've had some involvement in Zen uh, in the West, yeah. and I've had some involvement in Zen in Japan. And the, the two things other than their name couldn't be more dissimilar to each other if they tried. Um, mm. Just um, chalk and cheese, you know. Um, so, and sometime we'll go into detail what I mean by that. Um, so we've managed to annoy all the Buddhists now who are listening to this. That's great. Uh, <laughs> not necessarily, because I think we, I think when we, if we do an episode on Buddhism, we'll annoy some of them. Um, but actually, you'll probably get some agreement um, as well. Mm. Because a lot of Buddhists see it uh, possibly rightly that all that unpleasant stuff that happened with Buddhism uh, was really detracting from the heart of Buddhism, which is about the alleviation of suffering. It's very, very difficult to criticize the historical Buddha. Mm. You know, you could criticize him on some things, he was a, you know, maybe a bit misguided on what he believed in, all this kind of stuff, but you could, nobody could accuse him of being an unpleasant individual. He's obviously a reasonable, nice kind of guy. And so I think we would get some agreement from a lot of Buddhists in terms of the way that Buddhism's been distorted uh, over the years for the purposes of money and control and power and politics and all this kind of stuff, you know. But, but yeah, which is only the same as any other human endeavour, really. It all, you know, ultimately power yeah. corrupts, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, so, like I say, if you think of the way that Buddhism is received in the West... At the moment, that's very much how it was received in China at this point in time. Right, okay. Um, but, you know, as time goes by, it becomes awfully more powerful in China. But at this point in time, it's a novelty. It's a novelty, yeah. Hmm. But it is there. So this, and it's, it's an important point to note, the point of its arrival and how it got there. It got there um, initially because people like General Ban Chao opened up the Tarim Basin, opened up the Hershey Corridor and, and protected it which allowed the small amount of trade that was going on through there, the little trickle of trade that was going on through there, to turn into an avalanche, to turn into a waterfall, if you like, or mm. to turn into a big running river. And this is the birth, the true birth, of the Silk Roads under Emperor Ming, uh, which formed the main east-west conduit um, throughout the whole of the, the, the medieval period and the um, earlier in the ancient period. Uh, this is where it was born. And it was mm. along those trade routes that the Buddhists initially came in. That was how it worked. And some towards the end of the Han Dynasty, another thing happens. Um, remember, we said that the Xiongnu were getting pushed from the, by the Chinese at this point in time. They were also being pushed by Turkic peoples coming in from the east. So the Xiongnu were sort of being squeezed mm. um, east and west. Uh, they couldn't really move from the east and the west. They couldn't really move south. Because we're talking about the Himalayas, if you start moving south, mm. uh, not the not the easiest you know place to 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 move a very large population like the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu were a huge empire by this time. Don't forget, mm. you know, uh, and there were also there were sort of steppe tribes. You know, they were, they were used to horses and bows and on the the nomadic pastoralists who are used to wide open grasslands and steppe, 
Mm. Um, they're not going to do too well in the Himalayas, frankly. Mm. Uh, so inevitably, they're headed north, you know, and they sort of the, the two sides gradually squeeze together at the end of the Han Dynasty and into the the subsequent periods. So that would be the you know the Three Kingdoms period. Uh, and the uh, the Jin Dynasty and the Northern Southern Dynasties, this throughout this period, they were squeezed and they sort of popped out the top, if you like. They popped out to the north and west. Um, and then they started a big arc um, over to um, over to the area uh, of Eastern Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe, and they um, ended up in the area where we call now Hungary. Um, mm -hmm. And it's called Hungary because they were the Huns. That's that's the reason why it's called Hungary. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So the Xiongnu effectively, the, it, you know, this it's a bit more complex than the Xiongnu was simply the Huns. I mean, they merged into Europe in the fifth century, mm. and you know they caused all sorts of trouble for the Romans, just like they had historically caused for the Chinese. Yeah, um, with Attila and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I thought I saw um I saw a program called the most evil men that ever lived and Attila was one of them, <laughs> uh, and I just thinking you know it, it's it's all recorded from a Roman perspective isn't it all that stuff you know yeah, yeah. you think of the horrendous things that the Romans did to others yes exactly. but like they didn't really count did they because they weren't Romans you know <laughs> yeah yeah but as soon as they get the same stuff back again he's one of the most evil men that ever lived you know mm. um and so yeah so the Xiongnu made this arc I mean it's it's not a hundred percent certain that it you know, because there's intermixing and there was a fair a couple hundred years of transition and other tribes were inv involved in, you know, but, but the Xiongnu had certainly were kind of the, the foundation of the people who became the Huns, uh, who were known in the... And there's, there's a lot of evidence for this. Uh, there's actually linguistic evidence for this. You've got them being called by the same name by the Chinese as they were called by certain peoples in Eastern Europe as well at a later date, the actual exact same name, you know, so... Hmm. Um, and so there you go. Yes, yeah, so the Xiongnu we've been talking about are actually the Huns, as in Attila the Hun. Yeah. 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 Um, but they didn't do too well against the Han. They did rather better against the Romans than they did against the Han. At, the, at this point in time, the Han were very, very powerful, mm. uh, and they basically got pushed out. And the Chinese took control of the Silk Roads um, and and joined up with Turkic tribes. Oh yeah, what I was going to say about those Turkic tribes? You got to remember this is pre-Islam. Muhammad hasn't been born yet. So those Turkic tribes are not Islamic, they are Buddhist. And so as they encroached into, they gradually, first of all, went through the place where they pushed the Xiongni out, but then gradually as the Han Dynasty starts to crumble and fall, they also push the, the Chinese out and they come into, they actually come into northern China, uh, bringing not just Buddhism as a novelty, but Buddhism as the core basis of their religious life. Hmm. into northern china so it's actually turkic peoples who who brought buddhism so if you like this point in the Han dynasty is buddhism as a novelty hmm. the, those later are coming into the northern dynasties period just not too long after the fall of the Han dynasty that's buddhism as a way of life coming into china so this is the start of it if you like right here um cool and so um as I said, this guy, uh, Liu Yang, is quite well thought of in Chinese history. Um, and um, th this is considered a golden age. Um, his son, uh, Liu Da, uh, Emperor Zhang, he was also hardworking um, and diligent. Um, but he was also a huge promoter of Confucianism. Uh, another one of these, uh, you know, Confucianism seems to do this to people. 
it seems to get these sort of militant uh, advocates who enter into government and start uh, with the best intentions start making a mess of things. Mm. Um, during this reign, Emperor Jiang, so was up to 88 AD, uh, Ban Chao uh, was still around and he uh, further progressed the suppression of Xiongnu, so he's still moving further and further west and further and further north. The trade routes are, are fully freed up during this emperor's reign, so the Silk Road starts to pr really prosper. And you know, the Silk Road was like uh, the, the richest merchants in the world. Uh, were from this time forward were associated with that route, the Silk Road. And you know, there's there's some great stuff out there. I mean, we could do we'll probably do multiple podcasts on the Silk Roads and their effects <laughs> on world history, but it's colossal. And mm. you got. Western goods going east, eastern goods going west, and the diff price differential at each end is huge. So there's a lot of money to be made, mm. and and Chang'an is is you know was the starting point from the Chinese side, yeah. Mm. Um, so Emperor Zhang started out for right, but really late in his reign, uh, his uh, enthusiasm for Confucianism got increased and increased. Uh, and he sort of laid the groundwork for increasing amounts of corruption around royals and officials, uh, consort clans, uh, you know, uh, relatives of royal consorts and empress dowagers, uh, and eunuchs. And, and so, although he was a good emperor in himself, he's also seen as the guy who laid the groundwork for the decline of the dynasty. Mm. Um, uh, but Unlike his father, uh, he actually became more tolerant as his reign progressed. So his father had, you know, executed a lot of people for corruption later in his reign. But this guy actually was the opposite. He'd let people off for corruption and sort of, because he respected them in a Confucian filial piety kind of way, you know. Hmm. Um, and so basically the long and short of it is it, it, it started to become the, the situation that as long as you could establish social credibility within the Han government, uh, you could pretty much start to do whatever you wanted um, and and get away with it. Mm. Um, the next guy um, uh, became emperor. Uh, it was his son again. So though this was father-son, father-son succession. Mm. I, I won't keep saying it over and over in the early dynasty. Yeah? Mm. And the early, in the early Eastern Han dynasty, early late Han dynasty. Um, he became emperor at the age of nine. And the, the society that had been established by his father uh, really started to show the signs of Confucian field corruption and degeneration. Um, and he uh, lived to be a young man. He didn't live to, uh, to a ripe old age. He lived to be a young man. He did have two male children, but neither of them um, survived for very long. Um, and this corruption thing, there was, there was a lot of... Um, friction within the court because he was a young emperor there's a, a fight for control of power and normally previously in the Han Dynasty usually in those sort of situations it's the emperor's dowager's faction that would come out on top in this case it wasn't um, the faction of the eunuchs actually came out on top and a guy called Zheng Zhong became the first super powerful eunuch in, in Chinese history and effectively the ruler of the country um, mm -hmm. and so the eunuchs obviously being people who worked uh, in the imperial palace. They were, very, very, they were allowed to be close to the emperor because there was no chance there were eunuchs so that there was no chance of them fertilizing any of the royal consorts of the emperors or anything like that. So, mm. so that, But that obviously that made them the people who 
actually brought up the emperor from childhood um and you know this is very young emperor age nine to start off with and they, they tended to be the people who the emperors increasingly start to lean on and trust and they were um they were heavily confucians <laughs> and therefore heavily corrupt um and this guy Zheng Zhong was actually creating a marquis uh very very high rank in the chinese government um the first I believe the first eunuch ever to re achieve that kind of rank mm. could be wrong about that but i think he was the first and he was basically involved in all major decision making uh around the emperor uh, with a few others but actually um empress dang who was the uh the empress at the time um he supported her the, the Zheng Zhong supported her so she was sort of like the empress was like became like his ally and then when um, Emperor He Lu Zhao died in uh, 108, he supported her and got her son appointed emperor. Um, and so she was the new dowager empress with a lot of power. So the, the powerful eunuch faction was also supported by the powerful empress dowager. And, and in um, 107, sorry, um, Lu He died in 105. It was uh, Zheng Zhong who died in 108. In 107, um, the the Daoji Empress added 300 households that would be in the capital to his existing land holdings, which is a which is a large sum of wealth. Um, so the eunuchs, like I said, the eunuchs had become ultra powerful um, and had got the Daoji Empress's faction on their side, and in a way had suppressed the noble faction. Um, the next uh, emperor, uh, Emperor Shang, uh, didn't last very long. He was chosen by the Empress Dowager Dang um, of the two children, um, but neither of the children lived very long. And this guy actually died at the age of one. He died after ruling for a year, basically. Mm. Uh, and he was one when he became, you know, he was he was like a, a, a baby while yeah. he, the entire time he was emperor. Yeah. Um, and um, but the corruption this allowed the corruption to continue. There was no strong emperor in place to do anything about it. And actually, uh, during this particular reign, although it was short, one hundred five to one hundred six, uh, the Empress Dowager actually had issued a general pardon to a bunch of corrupt officials who had been convicted of corruption, or you know, uh, she just pardoned them all. Um, and so you can see what the problem. That's starting to arise here. So we're now three hundred years into the four hundred year long Han Dynasty, mm. and already a hundred years before the end, you can see the beginning of the end starting, starting to, to starting to crumble, isn't it? Starting to happen, yeah. So the next emperor is Emperor An, ruled from one hundred six to one two five. Um, he was a, he's quite a cool guy, uh, but he trusted his. Empress, he really, it seems to be one of these guys who actually he loved his empress. Um, she was called Yan Ji, uh, and and although he was quite a nice guy, he really trusted her, and that was a mistake because actually her family was one of the most corrupt in the whole of China. Yeah. Um, and um, early in this guy's reign, um, the Empress Dowager Dang still had a lot of influence, but she um, she died in uh, one two one. And then it was Emperor Yan Ji's uh, faction were free to um, do what 
do what they wanted, basically. He, he also was a guy who, being a Confucian, he collected people who he liked around him, who he respected. Um, and you could call them, he, co he collected a, a collection of cronies, you know. I guess, like, you know, the sort of hangers-on that rock stars get, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah. It was <laughs> that kind of thing. And there were sort of random assortment of slightly dubious individuals. Right, yeah. Um, and they they gradually pushed Emperor Deng's relatives out of the picture in the last few years of his reign. Um, and he started to trust this group of sort of corrupt cronies. Um, and um, he just ignored competent people. He ignored the advice of competent people in general. Uh, and, and as a result of this, one of his supreme, actually the supreme military commander of the Han Dynasty, a guy called Yang Zhen at this point, actually committed suicide in protest in 124, about a year before the end of his reign. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, things are going from bad to worse, basically. Hmm. Um, and then uh, there's a very short-lived emperor, Emperor Shao, um, Emperor 21, uh, the seventh emperor of the, the Eastern Han. Uh, was emperor for like a year. Um, and then you got a guy called um, Liu Bao, who again, you, the, the, you can usually tell if one emperor after another is a young guy when they appoint him, you can tell that there's some sort of corruption thing going on generally, especially there's multiple of these things in succession. So this guy was 10 when he came to the throne. Mm. Uh, and he was actually propelled to power by the eunuch faction. The eunuch faction, those are a bit of a power struggle, and the eunuch faction propelled this guy to power. And he was totally beholden to them for his reign. His reign lasted quite a long time, 125 to 144. He was a, he was a nice guy, by all accounts, but he's very weak. Um, and, the, you know, the eunuchs just basically just rode roughshod over the top of him and just he, he did whatever the eunuchs wanted, basically. Mm. And the corruption increased and increased and increased and it started to get to uh, levels that would be familiar to people in later Chinese history um, but weren't particularly at this point in time uh, taxation I don't know you've seen that famous TV series The Water Margin which is based on the, the great to, yeah. Chinese classic I used to love that oh, it's a wonderful series isn't it just a wonderful series but that whole thing with corrupt officials raising unbearable taxes, hmm. this is where that started, those sort of unbearable level of tax, which is just not sustainable. People are going to starve to death if they pay their taxes. This is where it started. This is, the, you know, uh, previous high taxes were high but but bearable. This, they'd gone into the place of unbearable now. Hmm. Uh, and this sparked loads of native rebellions uh, in lots of locations, especially in southern China. Uh, they were put down um, largely because, as a result of the fact that the military were unimportant and had been ignored and actually still had some competent people. Um, but also a lot of them were put down by bribes, which became mm. almost the, you know, uh, stop rebelling and we'll give you some money kind of thing, <laughs> you know. Um, and which became, you know, then taxation had to be raised to pay the bribes, which further, you know... Uh, Burden the people who had more rebellions and so on, and this is the reign of Liu Bao, uh, Emperor Shun, um, up to one four four, and the rebellions became more and more serious, more numerous as his reign progressed, and the problem was not not, not sorted out by the time he died in one four four. Um, his son became emperor again, aged one. Um, uh, Empress Dowager Liang and uh, corrupt brother, a guy called Jiang Ji, ran things. Um, 
and they continued to run, run things after he died and the next guy uh, became emperor um, the guy called Emperor G um, and he didn't last very long either um, he turns out he didn't he could tell he was actually a bright child he became emperor at the end, age of seven but he actually turned out to be a very bright child and he he could tell that Jiang Ji wasn't a nice guy mm. um, and he, he called him an arrogant general or something like that um, which Jiang Ji really didn't like uh, but he was too young to do anything about it and he was basically poisoned by Jiang Ji in, in the summer of 146 so that left um, uh, Jiang Ji himself free to appoint who he wanted and you know he appointed a guy uh, called Emperor Huan uh, Liu Ji Mm. Uh, this is the 25th emperor of the Han Dynasty. So you see how long this dynasty runs on for, you know? It's massive, isn't it? Uh, absolutely enormous. Um, and he... Um, uh, this emperor actually, at some point, uh, actually managed to organise a coup against uh, Jiang Ji, but with the help of the, un the powerful eunuch faction. So it's really the eunuchs who organised the coup, not the emperor. Um, mm. And... Um, at this point in time, many of the officials and, and kind of relatives of Jiang Ji were executed. Uh, but that all that served to do really was, uh, you know, that, that Jiang Ji had been of the uh, Empress Dowager's, um, he was the brother of the Empress Dowager. And so that just pushed out the Empress Dowager's faction, but the equally corrupt eunuch faction just became even more powerful. Mm. Uh, and uh, they chose the next emperor, Emperor Ling, um, who actually reigned for quite a long time. It was 168 through to 189. But really, again, it was the um, the eunuchs dominating the government. He became emperor at the age of 12, young emperor again. And this is this is the range in which the famous Yellow Turban Rebellion uh, broke out in 184. Uh, the Yellow Turbans are very interesting. They were members of a, a Taoist sect called the Taiping Dao. Hmm. Um, and you've heard that word Taiping, Great Peace, before, because much later in Chinese history, in the 19th century, you've got the Taiping Rebellion yes, going on in the Qing Dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is the this is the original Taiping Rebellion. Were they connected uh, in any way? Uh, just through name. Just I through think the name. The name yeah. was pinched from the earlier one. Um, right. But they were also connected, I guess, inside there were very similar rebellions. So people just fed up uh, was the fuel for it. But this one was very interesting. That it was basically the Taoist rebels fighting the Confucian bad guys. Yes, yeah? so it's yeah. quite cool. It's quite cool in that sense, you know. Um, and the the revolt was sort of put down, but it wasn't completely stamped out. So the main revolt was put down. Hmm. and But there were then, after that, there were follow-on rebellions and certain pockets of the revolt were never finished off. And it grew and grew and grew. And actually it becomes... The opening event, the Taiping Dao Rebellion, um, they were called yellow turbans because they wore a yellow scarf around their heads to signify themselves as Taoists, um, becomes the opening event in the extremely famous um, literary work, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the Three Kingdoms being the following period after the Han. Mm. Um, but after the rebellion, uh, taxes were raised to absolutely unsustainable levels. And the official officers were, you know, it sounds like the fall of the Roman Empire, doesn't it? They started selling officers, government officers in the street in open auction and this kind of stuff, you know. Mm. 
exactly the same kind of stuff happened with the fall of Rome. The next emperor uh, ruled from 27 to, uh, sorry, sorry, ruled, ruled only during 189. He lasted basically less than a year. Uh, can we remember at the age of 13, the eunuch faction were attacked by the noble faction during this period. And they uh, they took, this guy was Emperor Shao, they took him and the Empress Dowager, her hostage. Um, but then, um, they then they, they then were captured and fell under the control of a warlord. So again, we got a parallel to later Chinese history in, in the Qing Dynasty when the warlords started coming in, in the Republic. A warlord called Dong Zhuo. And Dong Zhuo basically took advantage of the power vacuum left from the war between the eunuchs and the sort of Empress Dowager, the noble faction, and um, took control took control of the government. He poisoned the Empress Dowager and later uh, deposed Emperor Shao uh, quite quickly mm. uh, and replaced him with his own choice for emperor, a guy called Emperor Xi'an. Um, Shao was later forced to commit suicide uh, in 190 uh, after a, there was a coalition of other warlords who attempted to free him from Dong Zhuo's control. Basically, they'd seen this warlord's been really successful by grabbing the emperor. So, hey, let's us make a coalition and we'll grab them off Dong Zhuo and then we'll be successful. Was this guy. So this kind of thing happens later in Chinese history as well. So you've got all this late in the Han Dynasty, not in a good way, but in a negative way. These kind of preemptions of things that happen again and again throughout Chinese history with different factions like the, the Empress Dowager faction, the noble faction, the eunuchs, the warlords, all these guys raise their ugly or pretty heads over and over again throughout subsequent um, Chinese history. So, you know, you could say early in the hand, a lot of the good things that happened in the Han Dynasty um, that happened in later Chinese history invented. Well, later in the Han, a lot of the bad things that happened later in Chinese history were also invented. Mm. Um, and the next emperor... Uh, Xi'an, Emperor Xi'an, uh, Liu Xie, uh, this was the son of Emperor Ling um, and the half-brother of Emperor Shao, became emperor at, guess what age? Eight years old, yeah, mm. another young guy. And he was a puppet under Dong Zhuo, this, this warlord. Um, and then in 190, uh, in response to a kind of coalition of regional warlords launching a campaign against him, Dong Zhuo ordered the destruction of the capital at Luoyang and moved the capital back to Chang'an. This doesn't actually last, but there was the, Chang'an became the capital again at this point. Right. Uh, he was moving himself out of the area where these warlords had had dominion, if you like. But then in 192, he was assassinated. Uh, Dong Zhuo, the warlord, uh, was assassinated. And then Xi'an returned to what was the ruins of Luoyang and came under the sway of another warlord, a guy called Cao Cao, and he he takes uh, Emperor Xian to a place called Shu, where there's a new capital established. So there's actually technically three capitals of the Han Dynasty. Uh, <laughs> this one didn't last very long. Uh, but then in 28209, Cao Cao loses, I think, what's called the, a famous battle called the Battle of the, the Red Cliffs against uh, southern, two southern warlords, Sun Quan and uh, Liu Bei, uh, which basically paves the way. Those, those three factions in that Battle of the Red Cliffs effectively become the three kingdoms in the next in the next period mm. uh, paves the way for the emergence of the three kingdoms period and then Cao Cao died in 65 and uh, was succeeded by his son Cao Pi, another warlord and um, Cao Pi 
forces Emperor Xi'an to abdicate. So basically, the last Emperor Xi'an, the 28th Emperor of the Han Dynasty, the 14th Emperor of the later Han Dynasty, actually is forced to abdicate. Um, and and the warlord, Cao Pi, it proclaims himself to be the first emperor of what's known as the State of Tao Wei, mm. one of these three kingdoms from the Three Kingdom period. Yeah, But obviously because of the disintegration of China at this time period, he doesn't control the whole of the country. There are other warlords around the country who have control of their own regions, and that leads into the next uh, period of, uh, shall we say, strife and warfare and um, just... Uh, Nothing particularly great and empire-y about the Three Kingdoms period, though because of that, that famous literary work, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, it has been rather, um, and how to put it, it has been rather glamorized. Mm. Um, so what could have happened late in the hand is that you could say anything positive about at all? Well, in 105, a member of the eunuch faction, a eunuch called Tsai Lun, invented paper. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. There you go. That's my list of positive things. Yeah. Okay. So if we're <laughs> gonna if we're gonna deal? sum up, like, yeah, what, what's the what's the lesson of the Han Dynasty? Uh, uh, well, I, I th I'm, we're probably gonna upset a bunch of Confucians now. <laughs> well, I don't know any but, Confucians, so it's okay. <laughs> but, but, yeah. So the um, the lesson of the Han Dynasty, uh, the later Han Dynasty, certainly, uh, which plays itself out again and again and again and again. Confucianism is a, a, a well-meaning system of government that inevitably puts people in positions of power without any checks and balances on them. Mm. That encourages some, not all of those people. I mean, the ones you could say that the ones that are proper Confucians uh, are benevolent and, and have a duty of care towards the people they have overlords of. But the point is, if they don't, if they're not those great Confucian gentlemen, there's nothing to stop them being horrendously bad and corrupt. Mm. That corruption leads to infighting among officials because they're all trying to be corrupt and they're all trying to be, and, and factionalization in the central government between, in this case, you got the you know the Confucians, well, a lot of them are Confucians, but you got the Empress Dowager's faction, you got the noble faction, you got the eunuchs, you got you know, and various sub factions within them. Uh, interestingly, the military factions are quite um, unpowerful during this period. You see, they're never really the military themselves are never really wrestling for control in any of this. Yeah, mm. um, the warlords who are not military, they're they're warlords come in at the end, but the the long and the short of it is, and I think the heresy is. Confucianism causes the collapse of societies. How about that one for yeah. a heresy? Is there, uh, are, there, are, there any, are there any places in the world now that are, that are still Confucian? Well, there are, there are no places in the Far East that haven't been influenced by Confucius. Mm. Uh, a lot of people say that Korea, certainly South Korea, has strong Confucian influence. Um, but it, it depends what you mean by it, because Confucianism is ingrained in the DNA of the Chinese people. Mm. I feel that the communist period in China, now here's a heresy, mm. uh, be careful what I say, uh, and certain communist leaders like Mao Zedong are not, not intellectually uh, steeped in Confucianism. They're not intellectually Confucian. Mm. They're kind of genetically Confucian. 
and I think that it's it's the major influence has been the major actually the major influence on the Far East uh, in general. Um, actually, uh, I don't mean I don't mean uh, religious influence. You could say that possibly Buddhism had a bigger influence, religiously speaking. Mm. But in terms of power and the way that Far Eastern governments have conducted themselves. Uh, I would say that, you know, in terms of politics, Confucianism has been the dominant factor. Confucius and Confucianism have been the dominant factor for, you know, 2,000 years, since since the Han Dynasty, basically, mm. of um, Chinese history. And you could say that the balance between, in China, the balance between Confucianism and Taoism, the sort of yin and yang, that shifting balance with it, with the complexity of Buddhism going into the mix, but Buddhism tends to be quite adaptive. Uh, you know, you can have Confucian Buddhists, you can have Taoist Buddhists. You know, mm. uh, you don't get many Taoists who go around proclaiming how great Confucius was. That, that, I guess that's where the non crossover comes. I guess there were some. Mm. Um, we talked about Han syncretism in the early part of the dynasty. Um, you. Taoism is is almost comes to the fore, just as shamanism comes to the fore. Whenever thing there's turmoil, Taoism mm. comes to the fore and seems to fix things, just as shamanism comes to the fore and seems to alleviate the problems of turmoil. But when there isn't turmoil, it ex becomes extremely unpopular, and you know Confucianism has come to the fore um, because the value of things like Taoism and, and shamanism is it seems to only be seen and registered when people are suffering. Uh, mm. When they're not suffering, they seem quite hap happy for everybody to become corrupt, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, quite interesting, eh? Quite interesting. Mm. And, uh, and that concludes our, our survey of the Han Dynasty, I would say. Yep. Um, it, it, we have the, the big... Um, we have the big question is what we want to do next. We, we've talked about Buddhism a little bit. I mean, we could do a we could do an episode on Chinese Buddhism. Mm. Uh, we could continue. We said at some point in time we want to get onto the subject of Xingyi and its links with shamanism. And we could continue plowing on in history if, to get to Xingyi. If we wanted to do that, we'd have to do the Three Kingdoms period, the Jin Dynasty, Northern and Southern Dynasties, the Sui Dynasty, Tang Dynasty, Five Dynasties, and Ten Kingdoms period to get us to the Sui <laughs> Dynasty, in which the it's quite it's quite a jump, isn't it? And are we are we going to become the the Chinese um, the Chinese history podcast? You know? Oh yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I'm, I guess we don't want to. I I reckon we should maybe we should just uh, you know take the dive and do Shingi next or something like that. Uh, yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah, yeah uh, Maybe in the lead up to that, we can just talk about you know the kind of stuff that happened in in general between the end of the Han Dynasty and the start of the Song Dynasty. Obviously, we're we're, we're skipping over the mightily important Tang dynasty and doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but we'll briefly summarize that. So so although we'll okay, let's do that. So let's say it's a Shingi episode. Mm. But um the the first I guess it's gonna be more than one part now. It's bound to be, isn't it? Um yeah. the first part will cover a bit of that history. Yeah. Is yeah. that reasonable? That sounds yeah. great, yeah. Cool. Yeah, we cool. should also just mention that uh, Glenn's got his Shingy book is uh, is actually on sale on Amazon at the moment. So, oh, yeah, right, little yeah. plug for Glenn and it, Glenn Board. Uh, look it up on Amazon. Shingy Chuan, Study of Tai and Tuo. Uh, Tuo? How do we say Tuo, it? Tuo, that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Shing. So, Crocodile. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. Shing is spelled with an X if you're typing this in looking for it, rather yeah, than so, a shuh sound. You know. So the thing to say about those two animals, there were, there were two of the animals that were, people think were added by Li, Master Li Luoneng, uh, otherwise known as Li Neng Rang. Um, they're, they're relatively unusual animals. You don't see them widely taught in Xingyi. And so I haven't read the book yet, so I know I got how good or otherwise it is. But but it's uh, you know I know that Glenn knows quite a bit about those animals, so I'm quite interested to see it. Mm. Um, and um, you know it, it's 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 probably an unusual thing because I don't think I think anybody I've ever seen anybody do anything in depth on those two animals. Um, no, no. I mean ever. I've seen um, like you know there's one book by I've forgotten his name now, and he just has like a page on each. Each animal, yeah. so like there's one page on, uh, you know, time, but yeah. but I've, I've had a I've had a brief uh, look at an early rough copy of uh, of Glenn's book, and he's got sort of you know like applications of various moves. So there's quite a lot of information in it, and it's it's very sort of hands-on cool. practical stuff. Um, and there's also but there's also a good bit of history in there too. So um, yeah. yeah, and some nice uh, Chinese paintings, which which are actually ah, pretty good. good. Oh, it's quite big on paintings, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, it, the, the the pictures are really nice. <laughs> Yeah, he actually gave me one, bless him. Oh. Uh, gave me a nice old Chinese painting, which we might want to do. Um, it's the famous Travellers Among Mountains and Streams. Oh, the one uh, he did in the Woven Energy podcast. Yeah, yeah, bless the guy. Uh, so, you know, we might do an episode on stuff around that, Fan Quan, uh, mm. you know, that kind of thing. So we might do some stuff on that as well, I think. Yeah. Um, I'd, At some point. I, if anyone's listening, I'd recommend that episode of the Woven Energy podcast. I think it's like episode three or two or something, isn't it? Um, yeah. Right, it's right at the start, so it's easy to find. But there's a whole episode about the the, the various interpretations you can make of. Uh, oh, of that that's painting. right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, another we we have a huge list of different episodes we want to do on heretics. It just grows and it grows faster than we can do the episodes. Uh, another, we had a friend uh, who who suggested we also look at yoga sometime, which I think would be quite interesting. Yoga. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've got some controversial things to say about that. Oh, that's good. That's what we want, mate. Yoga it's all made up. <laughs> <laughs> it's Western gymnastics. No, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. But anyway, well, 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 well I'm, I'm pretty sure. So we can have an argument about that. That'd be good. I'll definitely go on the. That'll definitely go on the list. Anyway. All right. All right, mate. Okay, Shingy next time then. All right, brilliant. Thanks, mate. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.